Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. Glad you could spend a few minutes of your day with us. We have a very exciting show. In the 1980s and for much of the 1990s, my guest today wrote some of your favorite songs. Ferris was a founding member, keyboard player, and the guy who co-wrote big hits like the ones we just heard and many others like New Sensation, Never Tear Us Apart, and Elegantly Wasted for In Excess. Since the passing of his co-writer, the band's charismatic lead singer Michael Hutchins, Ferris has played and recorded with In Excess and more recently embarked on a solo career. He's put the new wave dance rock of his superstar band on hold to write a series of heartfelt songs with a country roots edge for a five-song new EP called Love Makes the World, which is available wherever you legally buy or download music. Here's a taste of the EP's first single, All the Stars Are Mine. When I'm with you, everything's going my way. All the stars are mine. When I'm with you. That's a little taste of All the Stars Are Mine from Andrew Ferris's new EP called Love Makes the World. Andrew says, the lesson I took from writing for In Excess into my own career is that maybe I can do things a bit differently. And then he adds, I appreciate all genres. I don't think you have to necessarily stay in your little box and behave yourself. That ethos is very much evident on the new EP. I spoke with Ferris on the line from the cattle farm he's lived on for 30 years in northwest New South Wales in Australia. I opened the conversation by congratulating him on writing some new songs during the pandemic in an effort to make people feel better in these very trying times. Here's what Andrew Ferris said. Yeah, thanks, uh, Richard. I, I mean, it feels, it feels right, the timing of, of this music that I'm doing. And uh, the songs on my EP, which is uh, called Love Makes the World, it was born by accident because of exactly what we're going through. You know? Did you write the EP once all this started? Did you feel like a burst of creativity or did it take some extra work during this time, which is so hard for so many people who are isolating? And I know some people have really felt like they've been driven to create new things and other people say, I just don't have the energy right now. What was it for you? Yeah, okay, that's a good question. I'm a bit of both. Um, where when What I was doing was I was actually releasing my self-titled LP uh, called Andrew Farris uh, earlier in uh, 2020. And, of course, when the pandemic kicked in, and you're right, the whole world went nuts and stopped you to every Nobody knows how or where or when we're still trying to come out of it, you know. So in the middle of all this, myself, like everybody else, I got worried about family and friends and health and whatever else is going on and people's work and jobs and including my own income, you know? Mm. Um, and I was right in the middle of <laughs> releasing my solo album, you know? So 
so at first I was kind of in shock. I didn't really know what to do. And then it occurred to me that I had some songs or tracks left over, uh, if I can put it that way, from when I was recording my LP. But I was happy with the songs. They just didn't suit the LP. And so I started thinking about it more. And then I discussed it with the record label, uh, uh, with BBR and BMG. And they said, uh, oh, I said to, you know, one of these guys, look, you know, I'm thinking of putting out an EP. And I thought they'd say, no, no, that's, we don't want to do that. You know, like you're in the middle of your, releasing your LP, and, which you can do, of course, but we recommend you don't. So, you know, when I suggested the EP, they said, actually, it's a great idea, which took me quite surprise. So to answer your other part of your question, then I realized, hey, I'd be able to haul ass and get in and finish this thing, you know, because I was a long way through it. And it was actually going to come out after my LP. But then I realized I, I got to hurry up and, and, and get it all together. And that's what you're hearing now, those five tracks. When you go back to songs that have been in the catalog for a little while and you start working on them again, does that give you a sense of reflection or does it feel like it's all brand new? Well, to me, yeah, that's an interesting question. When I first relook at things, sometimes I like them and sometimes I don't, <laughs> um, you know, for various reasons. And, you know, but I've, interestingly enough, uh, I think this collection of five songs, they all relate to the earth somehow and our relationship with it, with the earth as humans and, and the interaction between us at the moment with what we're going through in the pandemic. So I picked those songs deliberately, not so much whether I necessarily thought the songs, you know, were sort of shooting something else, but deliberately for this period we're going through. But... I've also worked that way my whole career. Uh, and, you know, some big hits, uh, say back in the day for In Excess, we had massive hits. I think we had a Diamond album there in Canada uh, with Kick. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember a couple of those songs off uh, Kick I had actually been working on quite some time before Kick. And people were surprised, especially the, one of the record producers we worked with. He goes, you mean to tell me you had that song when I worked with you, <laughs> right? And I'm like, yeah, that's right. He, he, I thought he was going to faint. He looked like he was going to be sick, you know, because because he didn't realize that I had that song. And I've always worked that way, you know. I've always, I, I work on something and I, you know, sometimes I don't know whether it's any good or not. So I just leave it alone. You know, I don't keep fiddling with it and messing with it. I just say, well, I've written that, and I put that aside, and I keep moving on. And sometimes I go back through my older work, and I find things I like. Yeah, You're such an accomplished songwriter that I find it interesting that you say that you still second-guess yourself. I guess that there is a, a sense of insecurity, if that's the word, that goes along with being an artist, no matter what level you're working at. I think what happens is you, I think actually, ironically, you know, when you start out, um, to quote John Lennon, you're lucky if anyone likes you, right. you know, <laughs> uh, really. But then, I, ironically, the more successful you get, the same rules apply, you know, and other people say, well, you've had your turn, son, okay, it's now a turn for other people, you know, and that, you know what, in a, in a way, that's true. It is time for other people to share their work, and that makes sense too. So really, at both ends of the spectrum, if I can put it that way, as a songwriter, you know, both ends of the rainbow, it's really, you know, you're still only as good as the song you put out. You know?
You're listening to my interview with former NXS keyboard player and songwriter Andrew Ferris. He has a new Country Roots EP called Love Makes the World, available wherever you legally download or buy music. We took a journey down a river to a jungle. This music sounds a little different than we might expect if we were coming into this with an NXS mindset. Uh, it's much more country influenced and it sounds fantastic. Now I know that you spend part of your time in Nashville and you've played at the Bluebird Cafe and all that kind of thing. What is it about country music and Nashville in specific that makes it so attractive to you? Is it the storytelling? Is it the history of the music? What is it? Well, there's a few things to it. I've got to say as, as a live touring performing musician, uh, you know, anybody that's listening to this and, and, and has done that kind of work in their life, you know, that's one of the great things about Nashville is people still love to hear live music. They want to play live music, you know, and that's something important, I, I think, um, that goes a little bit unrecognized sometimes uh, in an era, really, that's very technology-driven. But there's more to this where uh, my wife, uh, and Marlena, uh, her family come from Dayton in Ohio, which is actually not that far from Canada, come to think about it. Um, yeah, and um, so, but we then, me being a songwriter, we start to drive to Nashville, because only five hours drive, or a little bit over five hours drive, down Highway 75 uh, in, in, into Nashville. And so I, I because of my career, uh, people knew who I was, and I was very fortunate to be able to work with uh, some amazing songwriters, uh, some well-known, some really not well-known at all, and both girls and guys. But I, what happened to me was it lit a little spark in me that hadn't been there for a while where I... It wasn't necessarily, oh, I'm going to make a country album. It was more, I had that fire burning in me again. It was ignited to write again. And I, and I like the slightly competitive nature of it all where, you know, you've got to be good. Yeah. You just have to be good. And I like that. I love Nashville. You can go out and have breakfast and there'll be someone on a little stage in the corner of the restaurant playing guitar as well as you have ever heard anyone play guitar. And it just so happens that they moved there looking for their big break. It didn't happen, but they're still unbelievable guitar players and musicians. They were ambitious. It just didn't work out for them. There's so much talent in that town and you just feel it everywhere. Right, right. No, I, I agree with that. And by the way, uh, you know, uh, my wife and my family and I, we live, well, I guess you'd call it in the Australian outback. I don't live in the city or the suburbs and, and urban living, although I have in times of my life. But for many years, I've actually owned a, a, a cattle and grains when it rains property uh, in the bush, you know, out, out in the middle of nowhere, really. And so all the people around me who work and live in the area where I live, they all look like they're in the country music industry. Um, and so even the truth. And, and, and I do when I'm out working, too. You know, I'm in on tractors and I get my hands dirty and I wash them again, um, sanitize them, you know. Uh, but, but the thing is that what I'm trying to say is that my road to country music started a long time ago where because I live out in the country and because my friends and my mates and my buddies all work in, in sort of outdoors people. They're out there, fresh air people, if you like, a lot of them, cowboys, cowgirls, whatever. And so I suddenly realized, and I live near Tamworth, which is the, the Nashville equivalent, if you like, mm -hmm. in Australia, Tamworth. Is, I'm not, I don't live that far from Tamworth. So 
I started to sort of gravitate towards that scene of people. And I'm very fortunate, I've got to tell you, Richard, because they embraced me. They could have said, ah, no, we got enough people like you here. We don't need you, you know. But they didn't. They've been really friendly, and I've been a lot of very serious sort of musicians in that scene within Australia, anyway, have worked with me. And in Nashville, the same thing happened to me. And it's one of the things I love about the genre is not just the music, it's the people. Yeah. I like the people in it. I do think it's different. It feels like a different industry than the rock and roll industry. It feels like a different thing. It's older. It's more established. There's more of a culture to it, I think. Absolutely. And its history is fascinating to me. Uh, I'll try to keep this one really brief, but the other part of it, how I actually ended up recording Andrew Farris' country music or style music, was I started off like we were just talking about. I've always been a songwriter, and I was songwriting in Nashville, and and all that, and then Marlena, my wife and I, we took a trip down the Mexican border in the United States and rode around Chiricahua Mountains and uh, met an old wrangler, a fellow called Craig Lawson, and his wife and uh, Marlena and I, the four of us, rode horses all over the old stagecoach routes and uh, national monument areas, and I got a first-hand education by these people with the Old West and the interaction between the Apache Indians, the Mexicans, Mexican Army, the U.S. Cavalry, the settlers, the cowboys, you know, good and bad guys. You're listening to my interview with NXS keyboardist and songwriter Andrew Ferris. Find his new EP, Love Makes the World, wherever you legally download or buy music. And suddenly, a light went on in my mind where I'm thinking, this, this is, feels real and gritty and like the area I live in, Australia. It's very real. It's not... You know, it doesn't look like a Hollywood film where you can sit and have a nice drink in a comfortable chair and you can, you know, indulge yourself in some fantasy. This place is all real and this all actually happened. I know the place where Geronimo surrendered. I rode horses up to the top of Cochise's stronghold. I saw how he was able to evade the U.S. cavalry. And I went back to Nashville. And as they call it, you go in the room to write songs with people, right? And they go... So, what do you want to write about today, Andrew? I'm looking, I'm going, they're not going to like what I'm going to say to them. And I said, uh, I don't feel uncomfortably. I'd like to write about the old West, you know. And they're looking at me like, oh, look, brother, you know, that kind of country music, yeah, that's kind of old. You know, we're not doing that anymore, you know, sort of thing. And I'm like, well, that's what I want to do, you know, because to me, you know, I saw the cultural beginnings of it, which is what you were saying. The cultural beginnings of country music are amazing. Uh, they're really embedded in culture in our countries. Uh, I guess the same thing in Canada, right? Same thing in the United States, same thing in Australia, where our countries are really born from, from the struggle, the epic struggle, bringing old world instruments like violins becomes a fiddle, you know, the, the melting of a, or melding, I should say, of a banjo, you know, is really a guitar and a drum. Yeah. And all these instruments were made up by people who had nothing else, so they put these things together. And this kind of music was born. Do you think that you moved to where you live now to get away from the hustle and the bustle of the music industry when In Excess was selling millions of records and touring internationally? It must have occurred to you that if you didn't get away, if you didn't slow things down a little bit, you were never going to have a normal life. Yeah, that's a very astute observation. Yes, you're correct. That's exactly what happened. Uh, I was I had a, had a smaller farm that I owned before the one I had now, and it was a beautiful place. And my mother 
unfortunately, during those years, also was uh, trying to um, get through a cancer experience, and Dad kind of panicked. And so they didn't know where else to go, and they wanted to be closer to my brothers, who are also in excess, and my younger sister. And so Mom and Dad moved from Western Australia, which is kind of like, I guess, thinking of it like Vancouver, or like the other side, you know, what is it, to Nova Scotia or something, right? You know. Uh, anyway, so, yeah. And so, um, you know, then I realized, look, this isn't going to work. They need their own space. That's why I went and bought a bigger farm. But the point is, during all this, in the middle of all that, yeah, NXF was exploding. We worked in 52 countries. It was just huge. Yeah. And we were living out of suitcases and concrete boxes and getting in and out of things, that, as I say, that move all the time, you know, whether it's a car or a bus or a plane, a train, whatever it is. It's always moving somewhere, you know. And so I thought, you know, this is kind of unhealthy, this lifestyle, actually. And I don't just mean going to the gym. I mean... It can do funny things to your head, you know. So, uh, and then I, I, I just thought, I want to, I want to get my hands dirty. I want to work again. I want to do something physical, you know. And I, so I, that's where, how my adventure ended up in, in country. That's why I'm in country. Yeah. Do you think that all of this has led you to the place that you are today? You have your head screwed on right. You're making music that speaks to you and speaks to the audience. And it's because you recognized 30 years ago, around the time that you bought that farm, you realized that if I don't do something now, my life is going to change dramatically. Yes. Well, because that's, that's exactly right. You know, uh, you know, there's a few truisms in life. One is that you can only live in one house at a time. You can only drive one car at a time. And you can only eat one meal at a time, you know. So it gets a point where, you know, when, when you're accumulating things and stuff and whatever you're doing, at some point you stop and reflect on it. Like, I think that's healthy, you know. But I think it has led me to the road I'm on now. And I feel very much uh, very blessed. I feel that musically I'm on fire a bit at the moment because I have awesome musicians that have been recording and, and performing with me when I could perform. And I really hope that for all the people, all the guys there and girls in Canada, too, that, that this thing ends soon. So we all, go, all get back out and make music again together, you know, and enjoy it. You know? Well, I will tell you, I was walking down the street the other day, just around the corner from where I live, and I heard some live music, and I hadn't been out of the house for a little while. It was when the pandemic really had us locked down here, and I heard some live music, and it was around the corner, and it wasn't very good. The guy couldn't really sing. The guitar playing wasn't great. But I got kind of teary because I hadn't heard anyone actually make music for months. Concert videos just aren't the same thing. So I went around the corner, gave him a few dollars. He had a hat out. But I realized then this connection that I have to live music that makes it so special it helps reduce anxiety that seems to be swirling around us all of these days i really think that we need live music absolutely um I, I, i'll reflect on that for a minute uh, in my uh, marlena's uh, my wife's hometown in dayton ohio uh, i think bob dylan willie nelson john cougar mellencamp did a baseball uh, field uh, tour they just played you know uh, tra track and field places you know and um so we went down because it was just down the road from where we were. And I loved it because it had, didn't have the same flavor as the modern arena or whatever. And the point that you're making about just people being relaxed and playing music, that's what it was like. I remember watching Willie Nelson being in awe of him and, and just because 
there were just little kids running around on the grass, and people had picnic, you know, uh, eskies, or we call them, I don't know what you call them, coolers or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, and, um, but the thing is, I remember thinking when I walked away from that, that, yeah, we've gone a long way from what you're talking about, where you would just have someone playing music just because they, you know, A, they need the money, I guess, but B, because they just love playing music, yeah. you know. You're listening to my interview with Australian rock musician Andrew Ferris of NXS. His new EP, Love Makes the World, is available wherever you legally buy or download music. It was kind of funny because when I first started playing country music, you know, which is fair enough, too. I'm, I'm starting in a new music genre, so you're like, hey, boy, you get in line, you got to get back in the front of the line, you know? Like, right. you know, where you, there's other people ahead of you, pal, you know? And, and I thought, you know what, they're right. Um, and so I started off playing places like... Uh, um, there was like a, like a, like a record store, uh, and I, I set up, uh, I had a couple of brave people stand there with me on this little stage, and there was no big audience, just as a public walking around, and uh, there was guys selling kebabs over there who were waving at me, saying, we like your music, I'm going to thanks, you know, and, and, and it was really laid back, but you know what's funny? I loved it, um, because there wasn't any hype, and, and, and the huge lights, and the pressure of you know, and all the rest of it. But I guess that's a luxury for me to say that. And I, I, I mean, sincerely, I hope that uh, that all the uh, people who want to perform music again can get out there and do it. Mm-hmm. You know? One last thing before we go. During the pandemic, there's been little to no real live music. And I just wanted to ask you if you have a memory that sticks out when you think back to live music. It could be a show that you performed. It could be one that you went to that was really influential. But just what pops into your mind when you think of live music? Well, you know, I gotta say, the first band I was still, believe it or not, was the Beatles, because uh, my dad was in the Royal Navy, and uh, he hadn't been back to see his uh, parents or my grandparents for 15 years, and my mother was from Perth in Western Australia, so dad put us on a ship. And I've been so sick in my life, I gotta tell you. And we went uh, for three weeks on this old, old beat-up Russian cruise liner thing up through the um, Suez Canal. And when I got there, uh, we were little kids, uh, 1964, and out walked the Beatles. It was pretty weird. Anyway, uh, and then, yeah, pretty strange, And considering it's on the other side of the world yeah. as well. <laughs> right? You know, yeah, sure, that happens to everybody. Not. Anyway, so... You know, yeah, and then, but the other, then we went and met him, Dad said to me afterwards, which I found even more surreal. Yeah. Uh, but I think that, yeah. And then, but then, uh, you know, for myself and my own career, I, I think for me, performing in the Bluebird Cafe in Nashville, for me, that was a real highlight in my personal life and being in the country music genre. Um, you know, that, that, that A, they, they let me in the room, uh, and B, that, you know, it, it just it suddenly opened my eyes that, um, look, I can do this, you know, because before that I still felt really nervous and uncomfortable about it all. But that was, I've done it twice now, and uh, I just want to say thanks to all those folks who, uh, who let me in the door. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you about that, because the beauty of the Bluebird Cafe is that there's nowhere to hide. There's people almost pressed right up against the stage, and they are music lovers, and they are there for the songs and the performance. And I suppose that brings a certain amount of pressure, but also pleasure. You know, that's right, and you got to relax into it. You got to, otherwise, you're worrying about where your pinky is, and when someone's <laughs> head is six inches from your fretboard, you know, uh, and you can get real paranoid if you're not careful. But you know, no, I think uh, you know, I just I realize, look, part of this 
this is. I've just got to relax and be friendly with folks. And also, it's not just about me. It's about uh, the other people in the room who are, I was performing with on the different occasions and about their songs and their skill sets. You know, it's not just about me, you know. And that takes pressure off, too. That was my interview with Andrew Ferris of InXS. Find his new EP, Love Makes the World. It's available now wherever you legally buy or download music. We begin this segment with an interview with journalist Justin Ling. He's the author of Missing from the Village, the story of serial killer Bruce MacArthur, the search for justice, and the system that failed Toronto's queer community. It documents the tragic and resonant story of the disappearance of eight men, the victims of serial killer Bruce MacArthur from Toronto's queer community. Tell me what spurred your initial interest in this investigation. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't totally intentional. Uh, I was sitting right at my office uh, when I still worked in the Parliamentary Press Gallery in Ottawa, uh, in 2015, uh, it was the summer right before the 2015 election, and, and frankly, I didn't have much to do. I was sitting <laughs> in my office, vaguely bored, and I started just thinking of, of stories you know, that I had kind of um, followed a bit, but that maybe I haven't followed up on in some time. And I started thinking about this case that I, I remember following years prior, you know, of these three men who had disappeared from Toronto's gay village. And I thought to myself, you know, whatever happened to that? Was it ever solved? Has there been any follow-up on it? Um, I remember at the time thinking, you know, this was almost certainly a serial killer, um, or at least, you know, some something nefarious was going on. Um, and I basically sat in my office and just started, you know, looking through Google. And there had been no update. There had been no arrest. There had been no sustained coverage. Um, people had largely forgotten about it since 2013, uh, two years you know, prior to that. And... Um, I sort of said, you know, this is this is absurd. Like, there's evidently something wrong here. Um, so I just dedicated myself to, to, you know, over the next two years after that, uh, of trying to put together the story of what had happened. Um, and, you know, it, it didn't, of course, uh, it wasn't until early 2018 that there was finally an arrest. Um, but it was, it was total kind of happenstance that I ended up um, kind of devoting so much of my time to it. Well, you say that even before you were involved, it felt obvious to you that it was the work of a serial killer. If it was so obvious to you and the people around you, why did it take so long for the police to come to the same conclusion? Well, I mean, you know, that's the question I had going into this book. You know, even after Bruce MacArthur was arrested, even after a lot of the details of the investigation were made public, you know, I was still sort of left with this question of how was it that this wasn't obvious? How was it that people continued to go missing and weren't tied to these original cases? Mm -hmm. How is it that you could have an investigation into three missing persons that look so similar that have all the hallmarks of a serial killer that could be allowed to get shut down and sort of left to lie fallow and, and left to sit in a, a filing cabinet somewhere. And, you know, I think there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. Um, I mean, everything from miscommunication between different police divisions, um, you know, uh, mis you know, apprehensions about, um, you know, what these men may have done. You know, there was a belief in some of these cases that these guys had, and I'm going to use some aggressive scare quotes here, had vacated their lives, right. that they had simply picked up, uh, moved back to Afghanistan or taken off to a new country or, um, you know, just absolutely disappeared That that as though that's something that, um, you know, people, especially I think gay men, especially gay men in the closet, I think was the, was the understanding something that they just naturally do. Um, so, you know, I think those definitely had a role planet there were investigators who i think from the beginning 
believed there was a serial killer at work, um, but just I, I think may not have been given the resources, the time, or the you know the the leeway to go fully investigate that and to continue on that line of thinking um, until they were able to make an arrest. And I think that's ultimately a, a big reason why uh, Bruce MacArthur was allowed to get away with this for as long as he did. Now you touched on it a little bit there, but are there differences in the way that the police handle missing persons cases involving men rather than women? Yeah, absolutely. It's a really, and it's something that a lot of people will tell you who uh, who work in the space, you know, especially people who outside government who advocate for missing people. They'll tell you that there is this really sexist attitude um, that really doesn't help anybody, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a belief that um, you know women are taken, women go missing, women are abducted, but men choose to disappear. That men pick up their stuff and take off. You know, I can tell you that in one of these cases, um, you know, uh, in the case of Abdelbas or Faizi, who disappeared in December of 2010. He uh, he vanished one night after hanging out in the village. His car was found, uh, you know, about you know fifteen twenty minutes away. Uh, but a week later, and police internally had kind of come to the decision that he had, like I said, vacated his life. That he had maybe gone back to Afghanistan. This, despite the fact that he didn't take out any money. He didn't bring any credit cards with him, and he left his passport at home. You know how? You know what sort of you know criminal mastermind must he have been to have just picked up and vanished like that with a new identity? Maybe um, you know, and it, it is a really bizarre assumption that police make that that people just do this, that people will leave their dog at home, that people um, you know won't uh, tell their friends and family, that people will just abandon you know every personal connection they've made, and you know. Underlying that is sure this, this this assumption is made more for men than women. But underlying that, there's a there's a, a cultural aspect to it, a belief that because they're from another country, um, because in mo- in this case most of Bruce MacArthur's victims were immigrants, a belief that because they came from another country that they just will abandon Canada and go back at the drop of a hat. Um, even though home might not be safe for them. Uh, it's also a belief that, that queer people are more likely to vanish because they're just unhappy with their life and are willing to sacrifice everything to who knows what uh, and just disappear. So, you know, there's a lot of just, I think, innate assumptions that go into pol- you know, how police deal with missing persons cases. And I think it's kind of why, towards the end of the book, I come to the conclusion that um, maybe police aren't always the right tool when it comes to missing persons cases. Maybe it's time we think seriously, um, you know, amidst this conversation about defunding the police and changing the role of policing in society, maybe it's time to start thinking about another tool um, to help us track down missing people when they when they do in fact disappear. You're listening to my interview with Justin Ling, author of Missing from the Village, the story of serial killer Bruce MacArthur, the search for justice and the system that failed Toronto's queer community. What kind of impact this had on the queer community in Toronto at the time? It was it was it was unnerving. It was mm-hmm. devastating. I mean, you know, I recall being in Toronto, um, you know, in 2015, in 2016, 2017, 2018, um, you know, when people were going missing, uh, when people knew that people were going missing, when people were, you know, winding up dead. I'm thinking of the cases of a Laura Wells, a trans woman whose body um, was found but not identified for months. I'm thinking of the case of Tess Ritchie, a woman who disappeared and and her body had to be found by her mother and aunt. Um, You know, there was a feeling in the village that they were being hunted. And it was a feeling that the cops weren't doing enough 
to stop it. You know, there, there really was, and, you know, and I know in, in this book I try to lay out, you know, pretty uh, extensively the work the police were doing in 2016, 2017, 2018, you know, as men were still going missing. Um, but I think there was a real disconnect between the work they were doing behind the scenes and what was being relayed to the, to the public and to the community. Um, the chief of police was consistently saying there is no serial killer. There's no evidence that you know anything uh, untoward has happened here. There's no evidence of foul play, and it felt to the community like gaslighting. It felt to the community like they were being told that their very legitimate concerns were alarmist, uh, were unfounded, um, and and were basically just paranoid. But that paranoia turned out to be very very accurate. Um, ultimately, you know, eight men went missing and were murdered. Um, you know, from the village, there are still cases of people missing who have not been resolved. Um, you know, there are still unsolved murders going back to the 70s that still deserve to be solved. Um, we still don't know uh, a cause of death for Laura Wells. Um, you know, there are still a lot of unanswered questions. There's, you know, murders um, of sex workers in the village that people still feel like have not been given their adequate due and, and have not been adequately investigated. So I think there's this there had been a long-standing feeling like a murder in the village counts for less. Mm -hmm. There's been a long-standing feeling like the police just have not learned how to deal or talk to the community. There's a long-standing feeling like, um, you know, the police want to talk past or over the community and tend to think the community is history, you know, is full of histrionics. Uh, and I think it is, it speaks to the fundamental divide between the queer community and the police one that the police have still done a woefully inadequate job of resolving. Well, do you think that those biases then played a role when the police decided not to charge Bruce MacArthur after a man alleged that MacArthur had attempted to strangle him during a sexual encounter? Well, you know, it's actually really funny. I mean, it's not funny. It, it, it's really sad. This, this 2016 incident is incredibly difficult, and I try to parse it as best I can in the book. Um, the reality is Bruce MacArthur walked into a police station after, you know, assaulting a man in the back of his van. Police, for the police that were, you know, in that station, they had basically two sides of a story. Uh, Bruce MacArthur saying, you know, it was consensual, it got it out of hand, and I'm sorry. And another man saying he attacked me. Now, in those cases, it can be really hard to press charges, you know. That is, you know, kind of the epitome of a he said, he said situation. Now, when police did a record search on Bruce MacArthur, they should have found a 2001 assault charge uh, for which he was convicted. And uh, and secondarily, that he was investigated and interviewed in 2013 in connection with the three missing men who disappeared from the village. They saw neither of those records. Um, and the question of why is still an open question. So we, what they basically had was... Um, you know, a circumstance of, of, you know, alleged domestic assault, basically. Um, and they didn't, they declined to press charges. You know, I think we can, you know, argue about whether or not that was right or wrong. But what I can tell you is that in the whole arc of this story, that was by far not the largest failure. That was by far, you know, I think the officers involved um, acted responsibly. And I think that acted thoughtfully. Whether or not the conclusion they made was wrong, I think it's still an open question. But the decision by the Toronto police 
to basically pin the blame on the officers working that night for the whole story, I think, deserves a lot of scrutiny. That was my interview with journalist Justin Ling. You can find his book, Missing from the Village, the story of serial killer Bruce MacArthur, the search for justice, and the system that failed Toronto's queer community wherever you buy fine books. It's a fascinating read, and he will fill in any gaps that were left unanswered in that interview. Well, that's it for the show today. My thanks to Andrew Ferris for calling in from Australia to talk about his new EP, Love Makes the World. My thanks to Justin Ling. But as always, my biggest thanks goes to you out there for listening. I'm Richard Krauss. Stay happy, stay safe, and we'll talk again soon.